Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Keith Lyons in my kitchen, fist pump. <laughs> you practising. So we're going to start with Sound Scissors paper. Yeah. First five. You get two points if you win with paper. I'm going to start with paper. Okay, you ready? So we go rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Mm-hmm. You ready? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And you, trust me. Two nil. Brilliant. Just uh, <laughs> don't <make me> feel bad. <laughs> ready? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. What's that? It's a dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> so you've wrapped me, so I'm out. <laughs> My daughter gave me that. Two one. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, two all, two all. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. What's that? Dynamite. <laughs> Dynamite is not okay. <laughs> I'm not giving you a point for that. It's still two all. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, mate, three, two. Yeah. I keep going for the big win. Yeah. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, mate, four, two. Oh, neat. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Four, three, Draw. four, three. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Four all. Whoever wins this wins. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Dynamite. Wrap you. <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Uh, thanks for hanging with me, Keith. Uh, um, yeah, well, should we just start with you? you tell me about your... Well, have, have you ended up in my kitchen? Because um, I'm not sure I will let you in. <laughs> so I, I think that I was very fortunate five years ago to be introduced to you as part of what I would call a critical friend project. Uh, Kevin Bowring, with whom I played rugby 40 years ago, nominated 10 English coaches to be part of the project, and, and you're one of them. And, and, and rugby and cricket? Yes, there are 10 cricketers as well. And um, um, what's been your... What's been the big rocks or what's been the stuff you found out? Clearly everyone's got individual <coughs> stories and individual journeys and that, that might be one of your big rocks. Yeah. Um, what's been the insight from the last five years? So the two biggest takeaways for me, first off is the 20 people are remarkable. I thought you were about to say the 20 yeah. people no longer have jobs. 19, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's the first thing. Uh, So they know about their game in a remarkable way. Their their cognitive map of the game is very, very distinctive. 
And the second one is um, that despite everything we know about coaching, it eventually comes down to your family. So all 20 coaches I've met have had issues around their family. And so I've been trying to work out for five years how you support an ambitious coach in the context of being a family person during that time. It's slightly easier in rugby. Uh, cricket I'm just astounded by because some of the coaches are away from their families for over 300 days a year. Wow. Mm. Wow, wait. God. And have you found out how to help my wife and my kids? Well, I think that um, I would never give, <laughs> give advice, but I, I, I just am mindful of monitoring from a distance what's happening. And I think you and I know that we've occasionally had conversations about how you make priorities in your own life around the family and the work that you need to do. Yeah, I speak a lot to coaches about them caring for themselves as well. Mm. Possibly not doing that as well as I could, although yeah. recent circumstances definitely give me more opportunity yeah. to do that. What, um, and, 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 and where have you observed people doing it well? So, well, well, well actually, let's talk about the fire brigade. Yes. So I, I think... Are that, they the fire brigade? Yes. Is that what they're called? The rural fire brigade. I, I'm a member of the Braywood Rural Fire Brigade and currently I'm an advanced firefighter and crew leader, which means I have lots of responsibilities. But the things that we've talked about in the past, Rusty, and with other coaches, is that why I like the environment is that I'm in a position to demonstrate the care that we should have for each other. You know, we we talk jokingly but seriously sometimes about love. And, and I'm care. always talking seriously yeah. about love. I, I think it's an underused word in our yes. world. So one of the coaches in cricket talks about loving people to bits. Yeah. And he is a world-class coach by any standards. And this idea about love being central. And, and, and the fire service is interesting insofar as people volunteer to go to places that other people don't choose to be in. So it's interesting, as you're going towards a fire people are leaving it because it's dangerous. Yeah. And that really heightens my own awareness of the care we need to have for each other in those highly stressful environments. Yeah, I mean, you, you spoke earlier about, and, and I, I was, um, I don't know if I was joking, but we're talking about trust. And so who would you, how, you know, often if you're on the, on, the, on the fire engine, is it the fire engine, on the way to the fire, and you might look in the back and go, well, I trust this person, I don't. But you said, well... They're on the engine. Yes. So I have this idea that um, since the only requirement being in the truck for any incident, whether it's a fire or a motor vehicle accident, is that they have to have been trained, so they have to be deemed competent to be a firefighter. And then the only other criterion is that they have to be in the truck 15 minutes after the pager goes off. And I think the transfer to sport to me has been quite significant because we keep talking about the team we don't have on the field. Uh, you can't talk about that in a fire truck because your team is in the fire truck. And what we do is we know that people have minimum standards and therefore we adapt to that group of people. Yeah. And, and, and the trust part you mentioned, 
that's the contract we have to each other by volunteering to be firefighters, that we would not get in the truck without that trust. And we monitor it collectively throughout our uh, incidents. So we're all support of each other, knowing just how difficult it is. Yeah. <clears throat> and what, um, so you spoke a bit about, like, well, your phrase, respectful vigilance. So I think this is, you know, I think there's lots of uh, lessons we can learn from the fire truck uh, mm -hmm. and your musings on, uh, on, on Twitter and, and online would, would share lots of that stuff. Um, you spoke a bit about respectful vigilance. So actually, well, I'm, maybe I'm thinking of that like in terms of feedback. So my comparison to you would be Danny Kerry talking about with the Olympic gold-winning women's team. Actually, we own our own feedback. Um, yes. We're really, you know, we enter this environment and it's feedback's just information and then you can, yeah. you can choose to do with that what you wish. So respectful vigilance is a way of communicating at incidents or within games around our performance I tend to think about feed forward rather than feedback Nigel Redman, Nigel Redman loves feed forward <laughs> so I've been very interested by <coughs> I've been following this work for over 40 years a man called Peter Dalrick who looked at if we were talking about how we will be not how we were and in coaching terms I'm constantly looking for any behaviours that might show a change in performance understanding. So I want to talk about what will be, and, 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 and I'm constantly looking in training environments, co coaching and, and the fire ground, to see if people have performances of understanding. Even though they may be incomplete, they are performances of understanding. So it may be communication with an athlete or with a firefighter, but actually, to me, it's about uh, condensing what it is we will be not what we didn't do that's fundamental to my thinking. And, and what's your observation that we're talking a lot about what we didn't do and, and the past as opposed to thinking of... Yeah. And, I, and I, I think that if we get to a situation in our teams or on the, the fire truck where we understand that whatever happened in the past is part of our learning then we can talk about what we will do next. So in the fire truck, after an incident, whether it's a fire or an accident, we have what in other services is called after-action review. And the final question is, what will we do ne better next time? Yeah. What's the insight? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. <clears throat> I'm talking about... Well, let's connect it up and, and let's talk a little bit about you. So... Talking about what what came from the start and where we're going. So we were talking a little bit about maybe the game of the future. Well, well, we've certainly both observed <clears throat> the game going recently. I mean, where have you come from? How's that shaped you? What's your story? Yeah. So I, I was very fortunate um, that when I was at Loughborough College, I met a remarkable person called Jim Greenwood whose thinking about the game, to me, seemed to be decades ahead of where the game could be. Coaches still often ask me, is, <clears throat> which books would you recommend? Is, is, is Jim Greenwood's book still the best? Yeah. So there'd be a lot of coaches that would be aware of, of Jim Greenwood. Yeah, and I think that, again, if I, without being sycophantic about you, is that what Jim Greenwood does, did and what you do 
it is that you show people what might be. And, and I think what connects you both is that you invite us to use our imagination. And that's a dangerous place to be in because our imagination uh, develops over time. And, and so uh, having a stimulus like you or like Jim to me is, is vital because it, it takes us outside the comfort that we have and we move to a different place in our own thinking, which is both exciting and frightening. Yeah, it's, a, <clears throat> it's the frightening bit I need to be more aware of. So I'm, and, and it's also the context, so it also can be frightening for people because of the context they then go back into. Yes. And what I think is that if we could persuade people that it's okay to deal with that, so <laughs> we grow up being encouraged to think we are invulnerable and that somehow we are perfect. Life's lessons are quite the opposite, that actually if we were to accept vulnerability, uh, you know, we talked before about Dead Poet Society. Uh, the Alive Coaches Society, as it's now <laughs> the, um, <coughs> For me, <coughs> one of the lines from the film itself was that we, we all lead lives of quiet desperation. And once we accept that, and, and, and that life's lessons are about vulnerability, they're about modesty, and the one that you, you and I have talked a lot about it, 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 is, so what if our life journey as a coach or as a firefighter or as a parent is about invisibility? Yeah. Which is quite opposite to, you know, the dilemma about being seen and making a reputation for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, which coach are you thinking of at the moment? Are you thinking of any coaches? Who are, who are either invisible or visible. I'm thinking of Jose Mourinho at the moment. I think it's really interesting being played out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel sorry for him. But actually, we create environments ourselves that uh, create issues for us or, or not. Um, so I, I, I think um, two of the coaches in the group, uh, Peter Moores at Nottinghamshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Stuart, Lanc <coughs> Stuart Lancaster at Leinster. They're in like they're in the gold groove, aren't they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I believe both of them share something very special, which is their understanding of performance. And both of them, rather like Mourinho at the moment, are subject to political decisions about their coaching. So, were they to have their coaching audited? everyone would acknowledge that they are outstanding coaches. And in both cases, in cricket and rugby, uh, both fell foul of political statements. Yeah, well, <clears throat> obviously I know both of them, and I would, yeah, I would agree with that. I like Peter Moore's talking a lot about creating players that, well, aren't reliant upon the sat-nav, um, which I think was a surprise to lots of uh, coaches. And then Lanny as well, really around, yeah, I mean, it's... He's just flourishing at Leinster, and he, he's he's focused on learning. He's focused on individuals. He's got himself. He's understood their context. He's connected with their culture. I think he's he's doing remarkable stuff now. And and I was in Dublin Airport the other day, and he'd be the kind of guy you could sit and Fletcher'd see him in the morning, but he'd just sit and chat to you in the airport and chew the fat and 
mean, he's just a he's just a good man, isn't he? Yes. Uh, both are profoundly humble. Yeah. They're becoming invisible. Be- because they've moved to this um, ultimate state of reflection where they understand that their journey is only just starting. Oh, yeah, that's scary. What are they going to be when they grow up? Well, <clears throat> eventually, rather like you do when you go around to meet people, is that um, by being with people, there is an energy that comes with that. And I think meeting these people gives you remarkable confidence that you should be trying things. And I, I you know, Peter's conversation around uh, whether we should be uh, sat-nav or Xbox coaches raises a profound issue these days, is that, that we have more data than we've ever had. We, we, we can monitor <coughs> performance... Uh, and yet what I think should be happening in terms of the work that you're doing as well is that so how would we start to talk with coaches about these words that some people regard as soft words or fluffy words so love feel uh, empathy care trust intuition all those words insight imagination yeah and I I would like to think that these are not either-or coaching or teaching styles, that they are part of a continuum that we access at varying points in our career. And if we stay at one end of the continuum, that's okay. But our job is to say there are other places you might like to investigate. And so the work that you do, to me, is exciting in the sense that we are inviting people to think in a different kind of way And even if they don't choose that way, at least they've seen it as an opportunity. Yeah, I would. I'm always often thinking that I'm just making people aware that some other stuff might exist for them. And then it is. I I would follow the energy. So the cool thing at the moment with my job is I get to follow the energy. So I'm generally meeting people who are curious about some other stuff. Yeah. Um, That definitely helps. And you were, anyway, you, I mean, you were the godfather of analysis, weren't you? So back in the day when, uh, when uh, Apple made uh, paper and pencil and a rubber, uh, that was, so that, I mean, I'm going, to, I'm going to start with a question. So my first question is, if we went back to zero, so the analysis didn't exist, what would be the two or three things that, if you were starting out again, you would go, here's some stuff that's really important. <clears throat> And secondly, I mean, what have been the implications of, of yeah. how do you think analysis has either helped or hindered our game? So I think um, I'd like us to start with a why question. Why would we be involved in this game? And I think that, again, it may be a bit naive, but it could be that uh, playfulness and game playing has different contexts. And we might choose rugby as one of those. I chose it because I saw it as an exciting time, particularly when I was growing up in Wales, around a group of players who, was, who played the game differently from their age. They, they came together in 1971 in a very spectacular way. And the why bit for me was that this wonderful feel about how a game might be played. Then... 
once I know why, I think that what I'd like to encourage more and more is real-time observation in coaching. And that we understood performance as a time series, not an atomistic individual event captured on video for two seconds without context. So what I wanted to, to do, I think, if I was, again, coaching, I'd want to be sufficiently aware to have a bandwidth of observation that took a long-term view as well as a short-term technical view. I'd, I'd, I'd like to be able to, to have players who could pass off both hands with and without pressure. I'd like them to be able to read games so if there was a, a mismatch or an overlap they could choose it instinctively. <coughs> and, and that they had an idea of space and time. And so I'd spend a lot of time, uh, I think, now talking about playfulness and the joy of playing rugby rather than the fear of losing. So I think I, that's where I would start. In, and I want to emphasise playfulness as the key to everything. So if you were going to have... <coughs> if you were going to measure three things, I'm going to use the word measure. That's going to kill you. <laughs> if you were to attend to three things, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to answer this. Mm. What would they be? In the, in the game of rugby, in order to... to, to to take it in a direction of travel that you'd be comfortable with. So the first one is, rather like the fire crew, I'd like the people with whom I coached to feel at one with themselves. I'd like them to be transparent about what they want from the game, what they want from each other. So that's the first thing. I think this transparency about why we're involved in the game. Secondly, I'd really like to create the learning environment where you could develop understanding of what we were trying to achieve in a long-term sense and, and let go of the short-term concerns about precision but actually go for longer-term issues. So I think that would be the important thing. And then the third thing, which may not be possible these days, is I'd like us to stand some time together for an extended period of time so we, we could actually grow together. So I, I'd want to create a learning environment that, that again, I, I suppose I, I'm talking about the processes of learning that would lead to performance, not the other way around. I, 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 I wouldn't want to be involved in any context where the outcome was the starting point of any conversation. Well, that <clears throat> might be a good time to talk about your, your football team, soccer team, football team. Uh, I mean, th th I just enjoyed that discussion. Yeah. So there's a franchise in Canberra. There's, a, there's, there's some opportunities yes. to, for a football team to exist. And you are, you're like uh, part of helping support one of the bids. Yes. Uh, and you guys have, yeah, you, well, you, you're talking of it from a transformational rather than a transactional point of view. So yeah. what's... So the, the key to it was that if we regarded a learning journey for athletes and coaches and spectators and uh, <coughs> officials uh, as a, a learning journey that people could um, move into a model that could be, we, we use the, the word nursery, that, 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 that we, we could create an environment where people could arrive, they could leave and they could develop. 
But we also added into it is that, that what was distinct about the bid, I thought, was that we uh, rejected early onset specialisation. So rather than having an under three football team, we thought we might go towards under four teams. I think it's under four. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it a bit later. We'll give them 12 months to develop. Yeah. <laughs> go through maturation. Yeah, so we, we give, them the, give, them the, give them the chocolate and the coke so we kind of get, get, get them to the club at the age of four. And, and, and the, the bid wanted to say that any um, organisation within the, the regional area of the club would offer children multiple sport opportunities. So they, they would... And what they would do is they would, they would say to them, we'd like you to sample football as a life experience. If eventually you might want to specialise in it, that's your choice. But at this stage, we think you should sample many things. Yeah. And we'd like you, because part of the problem of early onset specialisation is you have early exit from people who have then ruined, ruled out the game forever. Yeah, <clears throat> especially goalkeepers. Goalkeepers, certainly. <laughs> and what other stuff? So there's some of the transactional stuff we spoke about around um, the longer term view stuff as well. Yeah. So the franchise, should it be successful, um, would have at least a decade because there is no relegation from the Premier League in Australia, which means that clubs could take a much longer term view about player flourishing and the spirit of the game. Uh, we were joking about simulation that the club already yeah. takes, takes a position that uh, simulation requires medical treatment immediately. <laughs> yeah. So they go straight to an ambulance. Yeah, so they, they, go go to, hospital. they go straight to a person in a white coat and they, yeah. uh, they're, they're helped in, in uh, restraint uh, for that. But I, 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 it's part to do with, uh, again, the, we've talked about this, the naivety of believing that a game has an essence. So we talk about fair play, for instance. Uh, unless we're careful in managing and supporting that fair play, it becomes exceptional rather than the norm. Normal, yeah. Uh, so Billy Vernipola last night yeah. was, was exceptional, but yeah. why wouldn't it be the norm for, for yeah. a player to tell the referee, to save, save time on the video ref, I didn't score, I knocked it on. So I, I think that those exemplars um, should be used all the time now. I, my concern again is for the, the, the professional game is that uh, it can only take place at present if it's officiated. And so most international referees or most uh, club referees are now dealing with eight or nine people from each team telling them how to referee the game. <coughs> yeah. Uh, and I think in, in Billy's case, the idea that you could be very clear about what happened, it's equally fair, I think, to say I was unsure, particularly when you're being tackled near the touchline. So I, I, I think that, that there is a, a case for saying I, I'm unsure. And it may be that the opposing player says, no, I think you were in touch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this idea, we talked earlier about this idea about trust. So what if the game was a contract between everybody. Including spectators? Everybody, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that, <coughs> again, this, people keep telling me that this is too, too fluffy an idea or too soft I don't idea. think it's fluffy. I, I don't think it's fluffy, but, but what it means is that we have to somehow provide a compelling argument for those who think it is fluffy. 
and and the game could be remarkable. Yeah, it it could be. It isn't. No, I, and I and I agree with you. I think we <clears throat> we're willing to accept it being not at the moment. Um, I'm in a current debate around yeah, just experiences of young people and you know repeated seventy, sixty nil. You know, losses. How is how is that a good environment for young kids to be in? You you said you told the referee once that he didn't score as well, didn't you? Yes, I, I felt you know quite clearly I hadn't scored, and he told me that since he'd awarded the try, it was going to stay. And I, <laughs> I, I, I said, you know, I feel very bad about this. And, uh, he said, well, just, just get on with it. <laughs> and what I mean, what do you think, sir? What's your view of the game at the moment? I mean, you watched and played with some of the you know some some pretty remarkable rugby players over the years. Yes. What, what are you noticing? Um, there, there are moments of remarkable virtuosity. Um, I'm fortunate living in Australia. To, it's, not, it's not Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to watch New Zealand play. <laughs> uh, I, I think some of their provincial teams and their uh, other tournament play is truly remarkable. I, I, I think their willingness, certainly their ability to counter-attack, it, it, I, I find staggering. I, I don't think there's the same emphasis on scrummage penalties that there is in the Northern Hemisphere, and therefore the game is attractive. And We still have problems with scrummage in, in the Southern Hemisphere, and I think that that's become a real issue for everybody now, is that my naive view was that the scrum is just to put the ball into play from the non-offending team. With the changes in the law, it's actually a, a hazard now to actually have a ball in the scrum because you've become under pressure from a, a team that's applying pressure to you. So I, I think there are issues around the space being in the field being cluttered, by fit people who are physically very strong and so the defensive dominance of the game raises for me fundamental issues about how we play the game yeah and I think at the moment we're in a, attacks um, yeah, attacks are finding it hard to break down defences probably because of the stuff you spoke about so you would want every player to be able to pass off your right pass yeah. off your left kick off your left kick off your right be aware of space time how am I going to fix this defender? There's oh, there's often only two or three people on the team that can do that. I mean, actually, it's probably a maximum of two on the team, and they usually be wearing nine, ten, or twelve. Uh, and, and that's where I think I, I would want to go against the current trend of having a panel of coaches at a club. I'd like naively to be the coach, and whatever we did was around game understanding. If I needed some technical help, then I would get it. But I think my job is to understand that as well, so as, as a coach. And I, I, I'm really confused that, that we should divide a game into attack and defence. And my notion is that, that that's what... If I was a good enough coach in my learning environments, I would create the guided discovery possible for players to own the responsibility collectively and individually... For decision making, yeah, <clears throat> Glenn Delaney spoke about that and speak to Glenn on Tuesday. But the difference he's noticed in New Zealand is the players are want to take responsibility for their decision making, 
Um, I'm with you. I mean, if you look at, I mean, it'd be cheaper for the club if they just hired you anyway. Mm. I mean, they'd just be one of you. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be reasonably priced. Um, but the, yeah, last last year there was a club that probably had six or seven coaches interacting with first team. Actually, how 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 is it possible to then have a have a clarity on direction of travel? Uh, and yeah, it would it would seem to be quite a muddied message. And also because as coaches. We often feel like we need to be visible rather than invisible. Then, if you've got seven people being visible, then you know you have a huddle that that lasts a very long period of time. Mm. One of the um, learning experiences from the group of coaches I met with for the last five years uh, was from Gary Street uh, before the Women's World Cup. Uh, Gary made it clear to the coaches that he'd planned everything. If they wanted to add more time to their sessions, they would have to take it out of the time that they've been allocated. Yeah. And his point was, leading into the World Cup, since they had 100% of the time allocated, it couldn't be 200% of the time. So he wanted... And the other point, which I think was profound as well, is that he agreed with the coaches that there would be a single message shared with the players... If any coach changed that message, they left the squad. So he didn't want anybody confused. He didn't want the players overworked and overtired. And they won a remarkable World Cup. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the semi-final game in the World Cup that year was one of the best rugby games I've ever seen anywhere. They played beautiful rugby. They did. It was really evasive. I remember watching it and thinking... It looks a bit like... I love the way the Australian women play sevens. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of how the game used to be played. Yes. And this, again, since it is a podcast, and I apologise for this being public, is that what I find remarkable is that in the national organisation, people like Gary, Martin Haag, yeah. and you, as well as Fletch, are not at the heart of the game in this country. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I might get in trouble for that. I won't know. <laughs> they don't inform me. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and that would be... I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, some of the stuff I saw from that Women's World Cup team and certainly some of the stuff I've heard about how they conducted their business, what was the stuff they were doing in preparation was some pretty awesome stuff. I like that. They, I, I often talk about it, and this is... Uh, I would do meaningful consequences in training, so... One team against another. You, Keith, your team is going to start two scores down, come up with a meaningful consequence. And then Devon the other week, it was uh, whichever team loses, we're going to watch an episode of Emmerdale with our parents. Um, and they had one with the women's team where they would take shots at goal. So halfway through the session, they stopped the session, they take shots at goal, and whoever missed would pick someone to miss the rest of the session, which sounds harsh. Yeah. And I get that. However, that was, that was their way of recreating some of the stuff that they might be feeling in a World Cup final. And I thought this story embodies that consequence <laughs> remarkably. Uh, I hope Gary doesn't mind me saying this, that every Tuesday in the lead-up to the World Cup, they had the most horrific of days. And the idea was that when they got to the World Cup, no game would be worse than Tuesdays. On the final Tuesday before going to France, uh, Gary had a very short team meeting and he said that there'll be a fully contested game. 
the game would start with a line-out and the hooker would hit a jumper at six and a full line-out. The line-out would be contested and if the opposing team did not contest the line-out they would all go to have a two hours of physical training. If the selected team threw and missed six they would go direct to training too. Very short meeting, about two minutes. This is how the game will start. As they're walking out, the hooker says to Gary, that's a bit strong, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, which is wonderfully Gary-type conversation, I think you are the best hooker in the world. If you can't throw a ball to six under pressure, we're better off not going to the World Cup. <laughs> And I, I think that the ball went off the top at six. And it was oh, what, what, God, what, 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 <laughs> one of the best sessions I'd ever had. <laughs> However, that's a great way to start a session, isn't yeah. it? They, it wasn't you, so I'm sure Gary told me and, and some other coaches where he was... I'm pretty sure it was Gary who was going into a meeting and he had his 25 slides ready to go. And whoever was supporting him as a coach developer, it could have been Kevin, it might have been you, just said, you've got two slides. You've got uh, three minutes to narrow it down to two slides. Yeah. I just thought well, that's yes. a pretty good way of uh, yes. developing and, awareness. And, and I think you know, earlier on you asked about analysis. Um, my, my point would be is, as coaches, we have to ask, what is so important? We have to share it. Yeah. And the other part, which is always my second part of my dictum, is I think these days less can be much more. Yeah, and how it's delivered. So how, how we engage <clears throat> with, with the, that information. So... I love Saracens, you know, they've, they've had wolves in, they've had snakes in, they've had a, um, a delivered by a magician, they've been <coughs> delivered by a comedian. Um, I go back to the Sam Jarman podcast, and that's easy if you come from a position of love. Mm. Actually, if you come from a position of fear, yeah. it probably feels a little bit unauthentic and a bit fake. Yes, and, and my final point I suppose today to you is that anybody can be ordinary. We don't need to try to be ordinary. <laughs> what, what's exciting about your work is that the moment we try to be other than ordinary, it is an incredible journey that is exciting, terrifying, but ultimately the only place to be. On that bombshell, <coughs> should we finish with another guest? Um, which environments have you been in that you would... I mean, if you were going to recommend some environments for me or other people to see... <clears throat> any any stuff that kind of shouts out loud? The one that has made my journey even more clear is being involved in the central unit at a very, very big fire. Sometimes there are 200 people on the fire ground. You have massive aircraft coming in to drop water. You've got helicopters. You've got ambulance. It's just the most remarkable. And what, what I find what I've taken from that and, I, and all the other environments that, that I've been in is that once you understand the environment, you have much more time than you think. Yeah. But what is required is that you must be decisive. But you have time. And, and going to more and more of these incidents for me is where I want to go now because I want to be able to deal with that vitality through my understanding. Yeah, that's class. Yeah. Take the principles. Yeah.
<clears throat> so double punch now if you win on scissors. Yep. That's Good. my favourite one. Yeah. Ready? <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. You. One nil. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Two Why are you still using yeah. <laughs> Three, two nil. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Four nil. Four nil. Yes. It's a naked laugh. <laughs> five. I've got the clothes off already. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, oh no! Five <laughs> Keith, pleasure. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Cheers, mate. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. awesome.